At 3 a.m. on Sunday, September 11th, the people of Derna, on Libya's northeast coast, awoke to the sound of a loud explosion, as if a bomb had gone off. After nearly 17 hours of heavy rainfall caused by Storm Daniel, a tropical cyclone coming from the East Mediterranean, the city's two dams had become overwhelmed. As they collapsed, they released a deluge of 30 million cubic meters of water downstream into the city center. The flooding was catastrophic. It ripped through the valley that runs through the middle of Derna city, sweeping entire neighborhoods out to sea. The residents of Derna, sheltering in their homes from the pounding rain, didn't stand a chance. Overnight, 25% of the city washed away. At least 11,300 were killed by the devastating floods in Derna and the surrounding area. A further 10,000 are still missing, likely dead. Another 43,000 people have been displaced. Buildings, roads, bridges, hospitals, schools, and supermarkets have all been destroyed. In a city of just 100,000 people, the damage is catastrophic. This week, what made the Derna flooding so deadly? Why were the warnings of the dam's fragility ignored for so long? And how prepared is Libya and the rest of the region to deal with the impacts of climate change? I'm Nadine Talat, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. The rain exposes the drenched streets, the cheating contractor, and the failed state. It washes everything, bird wings and cat's fur, reminds the poor of their fragile roofs and ragged clothes. It awakens the valleys, shakes off their yawning dust and dry crusts. The rain, a sign of goodness, a promise of help, an alarm bell. This poem, called The Rain, was written by a poet from Derna called Mustafa al-Trabulsi, just days before the deadly flood wreaked havoc on his hometown. He had just attended a town hall meeting to discuss flood risks in the city and the state of the dams. Mustafa died in the floods he wrote about. In the aftermath of the disaster, his poem foreshadowing the catastrophe went viral. In the days that followed, the world slowly came to terms with the scale of the destruction in Libya and how it happened it became clear that this couldn't be blamed on climate change alone. The story of how Derna was left to drown is one of a collision between extreme environmental events and rampant negligence and corruption, one that was decades in the making and intertwined with the story of the city itself. We see Derna as its people as a different city, as a special city. We see it as one place in a whole world one place that you wouldn't find any place like it in the world. We see it for real as a diamond in the Libyan crown. We see it as a pearl in the Libyan sea. We see it as a waterfall in the Libyan mountain. We know that our city is not like any other city. This is Jauher Ali, a Libyan journalist from the city of Derna, who now lives in exile in Istanbul. His family survived the flooding, but his community is lost. Historically, Derna has been a cultural and intellectual hub in Libya, home to poets, artists, and thinkers. The city also has a tangible, rebellious spirit. 
In 2011, Derna was one of the first cities in the country to protest against former Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi, who had ruled for 42 years. It became a cradle of the opposition during the revolution. After the fall of Gaddafi, Derna's security situation deteriorated, and the city was eventually overtaken by violent militant groups, including the Islamic State. In 2017, under the guise of fighting terrorism, warlord Khalifa Haftar and his Libyan National Army launched a siege on Derna to consolidate his power in eastern Libya, and after a long and destructive military campaign, eventually conquered the city. I mean, Libya is a country whose kind of political elite's legitimacy has long expired, but their existence has sort of been buttressed by a hodgepodge of quasi-constitutional agreements forged in foreign capitals. They've consistently mostly maneuvered to basically extend their political shelf life, all while basically entirely deprioritizing any effort towards actually governing. This is Hamad al-Din Badi, a Libyan researcher and a non-resident senior fellow with the Middle East programs at the Atlantic Council. The current iteration of the political landscape consists essentially of two governments, with a prime minister in Tripoli, Abdel Hamid Beiba, and a sort of puppet government uh, based in the eastern city of Benghazi. You have also rump iterations of, of uh, parliaments that were elected respectively in 2012 and 2014. These are the High State Council and the House of Representatives. And you have a myriad of, of security actors or, or armed groups, so a fragmented security landscape in Western Libya with multiple militias that lack any meaningful oversight, and a sort of self-labeled army in Eastern Libya that functions a lot more like a family-run criminal syndicate overseen by Khalifa Haftar and his sons. And you can see echoes of all of this kind of story in, in Derna itself uh, and and. The city has a particular place in Libyan history, uh, which partly at least explains the gravity of the disaster being inflicted on it, and also the gravity of the sort of response uh, after the fact and how incompetent it sort of was and, and still is. Johar Ali again. This kind of representation of the rebellious spirit and, and the, the revolution ideology always caused the city to have a co that complex relationship that we talked about with the system and with the ruling people, let me say. Different kind of ruling people, from Gaddafi to different governments coming in and out of Libya until now, where the city of Derna is ruled by the LNA, uh, led by Khalifa Haftar. On the morning of the 11th of September, the decades of political conflict, marginalization, and neglect that Derna had faced would result in one of the deadliest floods in modern history. But this was not for lack of prediction or warning. When we talk about, for instance, uh, extreme weather events such as uh, storms, those are predicted and it was already known beforehand that this storm was finding its way to Libya and it was going to hit Libya. So the the prediction of or anticipation of that storm was was already known, but the issue at that time is that authorities um, ignored it and they waited until the last minute. This is Malak Al-Taib, a Libyan environmental researcher and non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. By the time it reached Libya, Storm Daniel had already caused heavy rainfall and flooding in Greece and Turkey. International weather observatories warned Libyan authorities of the danger the storm posed. 
In response, authorities in eastern Libya imposed a curfew on several cities, including Derna. The storm was expected to mostly hit Benghazi, about 250 kilometers west of Derna. But in the end, Benghazi was largely spared. The day before the dams collapsed, all of the people of Derna heard about Storm Daniel. We heard that a storm is coming and its center would not be in Derna. Its center would be in the southern part of Derna. But the city might be affected not by the dams. People of the city thought that the harm would come from the Mediterranean, from the sea. Instead of evacuating Derna, authorities did the opposite. They ordered people to shelter in place. At 7 p.m. on the 10th of September, Derna's mayor declared a curfew. And because they have no meaningful scientific or fact-based advice, their assessment was that if a danger would come, it would probably be from a rising tide from the sea. So what they did is they instead opted to sort of call for evacuations from neighborhoods on the coast. And many of those uh, people that evacuated from coastal neighborhoods went to relatives in the downtown area of Derna. And as a result, they perished in the flood because that was the most severely affected area. After hours and hours of extreme rainfall, the streets of Derna started flooding. Rapidly rising water levels started to trap residents in their homes. As midnight approached, desperate calls to emergency authorities poured in, but residents were told to stay home and remain calm. By the time Derna was finally declared a disaster zone, it was far too late. Only at 1.30 a.m. on the 11th were rescue workers dispatched to save those now drowning in their homes. By this point, the rain was causing the two dams to overflow and erode. The first dam upstream is about 13 kilometers south of Derna, while the second is just on the outskirts of the city. Around 3 a.m., residents heard a large bang. The first dam collapsed, releasing 1.5 million cubic meters of water. The second dam didn't last long after that. The torrent that gushed downhill through the central valley of Derna was several stories high, washing away everything in its path. When morning came, those that survived emerged to a devastated city. The entire area on either side of the Derna Valley had been swept into the sea. Today, over a month later, bodies continue to wash ashore. Imagine the beautiful sea that we always saw that it's a sign of freedom that's that's in the city. It's a sign of beauty that Derna has. Imagine waking up to see all of that shore covered with dead bodies. Not just normal dead bodies, but your city's dead bodies, your family's dead bodies. You see people that you know laying on the shore dead and you can't even help them in that current situation because it's too big for you to just realize what really happened the kind of disaster that happened the kind of metaphor that people in Derna use to describe that night as doomsday it's real it's something that In our worst nightmares, 
We didn't imagine that would happen, but it happened for real. It's something that we see as a nightmare that we didn't wake up from until now. In the days after the flood, as humanitarian aid and workers struggled to reach the city, survivors were left to recover the bodies of their loved ones or entire families that had drowned together and build mass graves to bury their dead. The grief and despair soon turned into anger. In Derna, it was common knowledge that the two dams had been in desperate need of repair for a long time. The fear of the dam was like the fear of death. That's how I portray it. We know that it will happen, but we never prepare for it. Exactly that's what happened. We knew that it might happen. The dams might collapse. But because it was too big for us to to even imagine what would happen if this, this happened, we didn't realize that it would really happen on the 12th of September. So yeah, we knew, we knew. The two dams sat on the Wedi Derna River that runs from Libya's inland mountains through the city and into the Mediterranean Sea. They were constructed in 1978 by a Yugoslavian construction company to regulate the flow of water. Since then, almost no maintenance work has been done on the dams, while decades of desertification, erosion and political conflict took their toll. In 1998, a study commissioned by the Libyan government found cracks and fissures in the dams. In 2003, Swiss engineers who examined the dams also found them to be under stress and at risk of collapse. They recommended the dams be repaired and a third dam be added to ease the pressure, but no such improvements took place. For years, experts had warned that flooding posed a real risk to the dams and that if they did burst, the consequences would be devastating. As recently as last year, a study warned that the dams could be easily overwhelmed, causing massive flooding. Abdelwanis Ashur, a professor of civil engineering, wrote, The results that were obtained demonstrate that the studied area is at risk of flooding. Therefore, immediate measures must be taken for routine maintenance of the dams, because in the event of a big flood, the consequences will be disastrous for the residents of the valley and the city. Despite repeated calls to carry out maintenance on the dams, the warnings went ignored. Ahmadeddin Badi again. Obviously, first and foremost, what happened in Derna was in the context, a legacy of decades of negligence towards the maintenance of infrastructure because of cronyism, kickbacks, uh, corrupt tenders, etc. Libyan architects are hydrologists, as well as even constituencies from Derna itself highlighted multiple times over the years that the dams needed maintenance urgently. Uh, I could go into the myriad of authorities that, that sort of gaslit the population in the lead-up to the devastation unleashed by the flood, even the local Ministry of Water Resources, the municipality, etc., said publicly on Facebook posts, etc., that the dams were totally fine almost as they, they were collapsing. So you see these kind of failures in, in decision-making that point to, yes, this was a natural disaster, but the man-made component of the catastrophe and what man has played as a role in this should not be discounted. And Johar Ali. The people of Derna always felt that they were neglected themselves, not only the city's infrastructure and the city projects and, and so on, but the people themselves felt neglected, felt that they were always treated as second-degree people, 
people had an anger feeling that was emerging day by day, especially that they felt that they were left behind. Especially in the first three days, people of the city felt that they were all alone in this. Help didn't came. Help came late. People might have been rescued if help came earlier. When the water subsided and the dead and missing were accounted for, the surviving residents of Derna took to the streets to express their collective anger at how their city had been left to drown and demanded accountability. Hundreds of protesters demonstrated in the city center, calling on those responsible to resign. They called for an international inquiry and for the dams to be rebuilt under international supervision, having lost all trust in their own officials. They even set fire to the home of Derna's mayor. But instead of responding to the anger the people of Derna felt, Eastern Libyan authorities ordered all foreign journalists out of Derna, implementing a media blackout, and detained local journalists who were critical of the ruling powers, including Johar's own brother. Derna's internet and mobile networks were also switched off. Until now, my brother is arrested because he talked only three days after the disaster about the humanitarian situation on ground. Although he said nothing against the regime and the military troops and the security teams and so on, but they refused for a voice of the people themselves to get out of the city. Unless you were working with them, you, you will not be allowed to talk, even to express your feelings. So the city is not only dead, the city is still dying day by day by the kind of treatment that it had. So far, a few officials have resigned, and a team of Libyan prosecutors from different parts of the country has been appointed to investigate whether negligence contributed to the disasters. But in a country of rampant corruption and impunity, Libyans are not hopeful that any of these measures will bring justice. But what's slowly now being sort of re-established in Derna is an ecosystem of contempt and repression for and towards the, the citizens. So there are now valid concerns in the city that the authorities, whether they be Eastern or Western, will prioritize pilfering over uh, reconstruction. There are make-believe efforts by the attorney general's office and by other kind of legal authorities to appease the public with a few publicized arrests here and there. But the hopes for accountability are unfortunately dim. In an ideal world, the response needs to be a bit commensurate with the scale of the tragedy. And the way to really bring about restitution and justice is to respond to what actually people have called for in the wake of the flood and the protests that you mentioned. So launch an international investigation into what happened, have international companies oversee and manage the reconstruction and its funding, see the political elite out, ideally through the political process, and expedite all this while giving people alternatives in the, in the medium term. What we see instead is the opposite. So you have politicians that are conspiring to bury the evidence, you have the media blackout, uh, heavy repression on citizens, crackdown on protesters and protest readers, there's a pushback against international efforts to manage uh, the funds. There's a parliament and a government whose first decisions were to allocate funding for the flood in the hopes that they can profit from it. And they're arguing now that they need to indefinitely, at least privately, arguing that they need to indefinitely delay the elections. 
and all to, to kind of top it all off, you have a very militarized response and, and a very heavily, uh, have very heavy military presence in the city. And meanwhile, people have been effectively straightjacketed again in, into silence. After the floods, officials in Libya, from both the eastern and western rival governments, tried to pass the flooding off as a natural disaster. But while the storm was a natural event, the catastrophe was man-made. Still, it is true that a storm of the magnitude of Storm Daniel is rare for the region. In the span of just 24 hours, more than 400 millimeters of rainfall fell on the northeast coastal region. This is an area that typically gets just one and a half millimeters of rain for the entire month of September. Climate experts have estimated that this type of storm only occurs once every 300 to 600 years. But according to a report by the Network of Scientists World Weather Attribution, an event as extreme as the flooding in Derna has become 50 times more likely and 50% more intense due to the effects of climate change, particularly from rising water temperatures. Environmental researcher Malak Al-Taib again. What we saw from the event is that climate change impact exceeds limits and exceeds what we uh, already understand of um, of the climate nature of specific regions, especially when we talk about the North African region uh, and the climate um, that is known uh, within this area. When we talk about climate change, the impact is linked to the increased uh, temperature in the Mediterranean Sea. So what we're seeing now due to the impact of climate change, we're seeing a high level of global warming and so on. So the temperature of the Mediterranean Sea has been increasing as well. So it's not only the temperatures that that we have on land, but also the temperatures transfer uh, to the sea as well. So what happened is that the storm that resulted in Greece, which was caused by a strong low pressure system, it caused the flooding in Greece, but then it moved uh, to the southern area into the Mediterranean and it eventually evolved into a cyclone, which is considered a Mediterranean uh, tropical like storm. And that's linked to the um, increased temperatures uh, of the Mediterranean due to climate change. Because of this abnormal increase within the, uh, the Mediterranean, it supercharged as a result uh, Storm Daniel. And when it hit Libya, it, it intensified the rainfall caused by it. So the warmer the water is, uh, the more it would fuel um, storms and intensify uh, rainfall, and that's why the results that were that we saw due to due to Storm Daniel was quite um, heavy, and it, that's why there there is a direct link uh, with climate change. And this so year, the month of July was the hottest month on record worldwide. July was followed by the hottest August and hottest September ever, and the Mediterranean heat is even more severe with the region warming 20% faster than the rest of the world. This year, with scorching heat waves, the Mediterranean basin was 2 to 3 degrees Celsius hotter than usual. In July, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said, All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. The era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. 
As the climate continues to rapidly warm, experts caution that tropical-like storms may become the new norm for the region. Yeah, I mean, in Libya, over 90% of people live in coastal areas. So we're talking about the majority of the population living um, in an area now that is uh, under risk of uh, increased impacts of climate change, but also we saw when we have a high level of corruption, the neglectance of um, environmental, let's say, security, neglectance of environmental uh, challenges throughout the years, combined, it can cause uh, a devastating impact. What we're seeing is that this is just the beginning of something that's considered abnormal to happen for the region, but we can actually see that it could turn into a normality in the next few years. Derna is emblematic of the confluence of issues that affect much of the wider Middle East and North Africa region. Political divisions and conflict, infrastructural decay, corruption, and economic negligence. In a region where temperatures are already far above the global average, these issues leave it woefully unprepared to deal with the impacts of climate change. There's an interconnectedness between these issues. Rampant corruption in, in the region really exacerbates the impact of climate change. So it hinders governance, it hinders infrastructure development, and in, in many cases, there's no disaster preparedness ecosystem to speak of. So you have a lot of resources that are diverted away from critical areas uh, like climate adaptation, etc. And that leaves vulnerable communities such as Darnas, but many others really ill-equipped to deal with any with any of the consequences of, of climate change. To kind of top it all off, the, the Middle East and North Africa are is one of the regions that is most severely affected by climate change. So you have rising temperatures, you have droughts, water scarcity, extreme weather, etc. All of these uh, across the board, we're now seeing the impact of in, in real time. To mitigate the impact of climate change, Malak believes there needs to be more political will across the MENA region, and existing research must be taken seriously. Climate change needs to be understood as fundamentally an issue of security. But unfortunately, what we saw is that research in Libya does not reflect uh, directly in policy and is not used to enforce action or to enforce solutions that would um, support tackling different issues. So activating the role of educational institutions all over Libya can support because many researchers in the country work on local issues. So it's important to understand and provide or bridging the connection between educational institutions um, research institutions and also governmental bodies, be it uh, on the ministry level, but also on the municipality levels, to ensure that those uh, research results are used effectively uh, on the ground. But also it's important to ensure that there is um, a mediator that would push for environmental uh, challenges and climate change to be prioritized uh, in the policy agenda. So. For the region, the impact could um, increase to be more devastating with the next few years if those issues are not handled effectively, if 
environmental challenges or climate change specifically is not addressed as part of um, of a climate security lens. I mean, until now for the MENA region, we're not seeing um, a consideration of, um, of environmental issues or climate change as the same level of the security lens when we talk about national security, we're not seeing environmental security as a term or climate security used within the um, governance uh, lens or the policy lens. And for the region, it's important for the next, uh, let's say, short or long-term foresight or prediction that climate security and environmental security as terms and concepts must be um, adopted within the um, governed systems, but also implemented within the um, community level. For now, Derna's residents are still reeling from an unimaginable tragedy. The flood itself was only the start of the disaster. Survivors now face the threat of water contamination and the spread of waterborne diseases. Unexploded landmines may have been displaced and unearthed by the currents, and the massive humanitarian effort needed has been hampered by the country's political division. Today, with thousands still missing, the search for bodies continues. The catastrophe after one month is still happening. The situation is still bad. Every time I communicate with someone on ground, he, she says, the situation is getting even worse day by day. We lost schools, we lost banks, we lost roads, we lost bridges. We lost the heart of the city. So right now, the city is still not awake from the disaster that happened. And we are still living the suffer that we lived that day until now. I believe demanding accountability is legit, of course. It's something that we shouldn't be silent about. Maybe realistically, Justice in our life might not happen, but that doesn't mean at all that we should stop talking about that. I believe even talking about the real situation happening, describing it as it is, telling the truth, speaking out loud, uh, uncovering and unfolding what's really happening is a kind of justice that we can acquire for ourselves. That's why I always encourage people to tell stories, to say that what happened has happened, to never stop talking about Darna. That's a kind of justice that we can acquire today. The kind of justice that we look for in our life is seeing people who had hand in this, corrupted people, corrupted officials, being held accountable. Darna is the story of all of us. It's the story of humanity somehow. The kind of suffer that we are dealing with is a kind of suffer that you can see anywhere in the world. The kind of justice that we look for is the kind of justice that we you would look for anywhere in the world. We are part of this world. We represent what's happening. We are still demanding our rights. We are still believing that we have a voice. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written by me, Nadine Talat, and produced by Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar Elfil. The New Arab Voice is taking a short break, 
but we'll be back on October 27th. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis, and opinion from the region.